This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We are a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. So thankful to see you this morning. Because I know how some of your weeks went. Right now, wives are elbowing husbands and husbands are elbowing wives. Did you tell them? I didn't tell them. Did you tell them? I didn't tell them. I know. I know. In some of your cases, I know specifics. I know about the phone calls that you received. I know about the heartbreak that walked in the door. I know about the confrontation. I know about those things. I know about the long, lonely drives home. In many of your cases, I don't know the specifics. But what I do know is Jesus. And it is my prayer this morning that no matter the story that brought you in, especially if you're a guest, thank you for being with us. That means so much that you would join us as a guest. But so often we know that as a guest, you walk in the door because something else came in your life. I do know Jesus. And it is my prayer this morning that your view of him, your understanding of his beauty would captivate your heart. You have come in with emptiness. You've tried everything. You've looked everywhere. You've opened every cupboard. You've emptied every bottle and you've still walked away empty. For some of you, the storm has been raging for so long and you have been rowing and rowing and rowing and you're no closer to land, you feel, than when you started. And those waves are just rocking harder and harder and harder. Some of you have come in with tremendous desperation. Doctors have failed. Therapists have failed. The government has failed. Your neighbors have failed. Dad's advice has failed. You'll try anything. I'm so excited for you this morning. Not because of what I'm going to say. I just, I know how incredible Jesus is. To help us do this, uh, I want you to take out a Bible If you brought one, that's awesome. Uh, We're going to have a couple verses up on the screen. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, they're located in the seats in front of you on the bottom or they're on your device. I'm I'm not anti-phone. I'm just anti-phone. If you're reading it on your phone and uh, device, that's okay. It's just so, I'm not strong enough in my spiritual walk to keep the Bible app open and Candy Crush closed, okay? So, uh, I'm a huge fan of opening the book and having the book in front of you. Uh, it doesn't bring me notifications apart from what the Holy Spirit wants to notify me about. So I want you to find John chapter 20, and I want to show you just two verses between 30 and 31. And as I said, it is my humble plead this morning that the Holy Spirit would just elevate Jesus to the forefront of everything in your life. And John had this exact same prayer. In John chapter 20, in verse 30 and 31. Varsity's going to have a couple of verses up there. You can follow along. John 20, 30, 31 says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay. John John says, listen, I watched Jesus, his whole ministry. He was constantly doing things. He was constantly healing and saving and preaching and doing miraculous wonders, miraculous things. In fact, he gets the answer. Listen, if we wrote down everything, and there's not a book, there's not enough books and enough libraries to cover out. But what I did, John says, I picked seven. I curated, if you will, 
Seven specific signs. Okay, what's a sign? Okay, a sign tells you when you're lost where you need to go. Right? Who needs a sign? It's the person who doesn't know how to move forward. And many of us walk in the door this morning and we're lost in our grief. We're lost in confusion. We're lost in desperation. And so John gives us signs. And what he says is, these signs, look to these signs that by them you may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ. He is the one sent from God. And that by believing, you will have life. Right now you're fighting for every breath. Jesus comes that you can have life. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do the best of my capacity, if you'll be patient, is that I want to walk you through these seven stories so that you can see Jesus and prayerfully the Holy Spirit will meet you in one of them. Maybe he'll meet you in all of them, but it's my prayer that at least he'll meet you in one of them. One of them will maybe grab a hold of you. You're like, hey, that's how I feel. Ah, that's who Jesus is. Okay. To start, we're going to go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. If you grew up in church, this is going to be really familiar. It's often preached at at weddings because it's about a wedding. Um, I've preached it at weddings, but I think there's more here than just, you know, for a wedding. I'm going to read a little bit and let me just make some, a couple observations. If you're watching online, thank you. Uh, I warned, warned Ryan, your cameraman, I'm going to dance around a lot just because I get excited. So if Ryan zooms up real lot, a bunch, it's because I'm giving him a headache. Um, Ryan, you good? All right. <laughs> John chapter 2. On the third day, they were at a wedding in Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Verse 3, listen. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. He said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it became wine. He did not know where it came from. Okay, look here. So we have a situation. And you might, oh, that's a bummer. There's no wine. Okay, yeah, no. This is serious in the ancient Near East. In fact, there are documented accounts where if at a wedding the host does not provide wine, you can bring legal action against them. You're like, seriously? Seriously. Why? Because the wine symbolizes the celebration of God's presence. For there to be no wine, there could not be a more serious omen, a more serious shame upon this family. This is a dire situation, a shameful situation. This is what takes what's supposed to be your I've married some of you guys, okay? I know how excited you are walking down. I've seen the faces. For, there, for you to find out there's no wine would crush this bride, this groom, this family. To be confounded and confronted with this level of emptiness where there should be celebration. So it's with tremendous urgency and grief that Mary walks up to Jesus. They don't have any wine. Maybe you know what it feels like to be empty. Maybe you know what it feels like to chase after and try to fill up that cavernous hole that is your heart and your soul. And boy, when we're in our 20s and early 30s, we try everything we can, don't we? Like, man, let's try this. And you wake up the next morning, not a good idea. <laughs> and we'll try this. And then we'll wake up, yeah, that didn't work either. And then maybe we'll get married and we'll try this and we'll try this. And sure enough, we're just empty. We're just empty. 
or just empty. And then you start to feel the looks of those people on the outside and the shame rises and the guilt rises and your eyes fall. You know what it means to be empty. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus takes something that's empty and he transforms it into abundant life and celebration, joy. Have you guys ever made wine? Anyone make wine? It's all right, you're fine. You can raise your hand. It's all right, you're not gonna be judged. Well, Bill, I might judge you. No, just kidding. <laughs> can you do it overnight? Right, if I like, go, I go get some Welch's, stick it in a vat, next morning I got wine? No, you can't. No, you really can't. It takes you a couple weeks to, before it becomes wine. It can take months to years before it becomes good wine. And that's what this story is. Because what they draw out of those pots isn't just wine, it's good wine. Because Jesus takes what's empty and what's common and he transforms it into what's good and joyful. And so maybe this morning, what you need to hear is that Jesus transforms our vast emptiness into overflowing joy. Yeah, write that down. It's in the Bible. In John chapter four, let me show you another story about Jesus. He's just awesome. Okay, he's back in Cana, where this is another sign. So a sign's gonna show me where to go and what to do. Who in the midst of it's going to reveal a mystery. It's going to show me something more about Jesus. And maybe this is a story that you can relate to. In John chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 46. Verse 46, John 4, 46. You can just listen to the story. You can find it in your own copy. Huge fan. So he came to Cana in Galilee and well, where he had made the water into wine. We heard about that. In Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay, official, eh, that, it's actually, he's a, he's a royal official. He's an attender at Herod's court. That's what that term means. So is he a man of position? Oh yeah. Is he a man of wealth? Oh yeah. Political influence? Oh yeah. Big estates? You better believe it. This is a man of position and power and wealth. And his son is sick. How sick is this child? When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him, literally begged him, to come to him and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Parents, do you know what that's like? Maybe you've been on the bedside of a loved one, a spouse, at the point of death. How desperate that moment is. I mean, here is a man with tremendous influence and resources. Do you think he's called doctors? You think he's called a lot of doctors? And nurses and healers, and he's tried this and he's tried that, and he's sent word out to all of his, hey, do you guys have any idea? Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea? Because what has he watched slowly happen as this fever has grabbed a hold of his son? You've seen someone with a serious fever. You can hear their breathing getting ever more shallow and labored. He has seen the color in his son's skin slowly fade away. The coldness in his hands. He is on death's doorstep. Maybe you know what it means to be that desperate. Maybe it's not a son. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your faith. And you're desperate for anything. And so what does he do? He runs to Jesus comes to him because his son's at the point of death. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It feels like it's a dig, but it's really a diagnosis of humanity. Jesus is like, you guys only show up when you need something. You only show up so you can see signs and wonders. How many of us have done that? Why'd you go back? Why'd you come back to church? Man, we tried everything. Let's try Jesus. Right? <laughs> Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. 
The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servant met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He himself believed in all his household. You need to see a little bit of geography and we need to understand time a little bit so you can really grasp what's going on inside of this story. Okay, so Jesus is in Cana. The official lives in Capernaum, 16 miles from one to the other. Okay, if you're going to cover that distance by foot, at least eight hours. Now, he's, a Roman, he's an official, he's royal, he probably has access to a horse, which means he'll cover that maybe half the time. So maybe we can imagine a little bit what had happened. No doubt the son had labored all through the night. Do you think the father got any sleep? Do you think the father left that bedside? And in all the desperation, he wakes up first thing. They saddle the horses, he and his staff. They've heard that Jesus is over in Cana. He makes the 16-mile run. Maybe it takes him about four hours, depending on roads, depending on weather, depending on situation. So he's going to get there coming close to lunchtime, noon, coming up on one o'clock. And it says he asks Jesus. Literally, it means a continual begging. Meaning he hits his knees. He follows Jesus wherever he goes. Will you please save my son? Will you please save my son? Will you please save my son? It's not a one-time asking. It's not a commanding, hey, come save my son. He is desperate, begging that Jesus intervenes in his desperation. And then Jesus says to him, your son will get better. Now I started to think about this because it's, it's Jesus' words that transform his desperation into peace. Why peace? Where's their peace? Well, if I were the dad and Jesus said that, you know what I would do next? I'd get back on the horse and I'd ride back. And I'd probably get back to the villa somewhere around five o'clock, somewhere around six o'clock. But that's not what happened because he doesn't get word until he gets back home that the son was healed yesterday, which means after Jesus gave his word, a word that he believed, and the peace of God washes over him. You know what he might have done? I know what I would have done. I probably went and got something to eat because I probably haven't eaten what and who knows how long because that's what you do when you're a desperate parent. Probably slept. You know why? Because when you're a desperate parent, you don't sleep because you don't leave your son's bedside. And I've been there. Oh, I've been there. I know that feeling when you're groaning. But I also know what happens when the word of God comes to your spirit. And I've experienced this in my own life, praying over my own son. When all of a sudden that peace of God grabs a hold of you, you're like, okay. He sleeps through the night. They get on the horses. They ride back the next day make it into the villa, get off the horses, taking the horse to the stable, and all of a sudden, the house staff runs out. You're not going to believe this. He's better. He's better. When? One o'clock yesterday. And the man knows. That's when Jesus said he was going to be better. And he runs into the house and he's met by his wife. You're not going to believe this. He's better. And the son runs up, Dad, I got better. No, no, son, the word of Jesus made you better. The word of Jesus made you better. And so what does he do? It says his whole household believes. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's got a big household. This would have included his family, his wife, extended family. This would include, because of his position, kitchen staff, butlers, maids, gardeners. This would include delivery staff, anyone who's underneath. He gathers them all. Gather everyone. I need to tell you what Jesus did. Jesus said at one o'clock yesterday, my son would be better. And he was. Because Jesus' word transforms desperation into peace. But let me also say this. Fathers, here we go. 
It was a father. who did the work and got on that horse and ran and found Jesus and pleaded to Jesus and begged Jesus and cried out to Jesus and trusted Jesus. It was the father who brought Jesus's word and Jesus's testimony and Jesus's story back to that home. And because of that father that whole family believed. Fathers, husbands, don't you ever doubt for a moment the impact of your obedience, the impact of your pleading and the power of taking Jesus at his word and bringing that word to your family. Never stop that. And if you haven't, well, maybe you're not desperate yet. There's a story in chapter five. We're going to say that for the end. I really like the way it kind of stabs us in the gut and kicks us around. So I want, I want to end with that one. Um, <laughs> is he going to do this all morning? Yeah, I'm going to do this all morning. Yeah, I'm glad that you're here. <laughs> Do you think if we leave, anyone will notice? <laughs> yep, I'll call you out. <laughs> John 6. Someone online just hit mute. <laughs> John chapter 6. There's a great, John chapter 6, verse 1, it says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd was following him. They saw the signs that he was doing. And Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. It was Passover. Feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, he, seeing a large crowd coming to him, Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people can eat? Verse six, real important. Jesus said this to test Philip. He knew himself what he was going to do. Philip said, hey, Eight months worth of salary, 200 denarii, worth of bread, not going to give enough for each of them to get a little. A little. One of the disciples, Andrew, here's a boy. He has five barley loaves and two fish. Well, you know what Jesus does, right? They put it in the hands of Jesus. Jesus prays. And it says that he is able to feed all 5,000 to the full. And there's 12 basket loads left over. Because Jesus' abundant generosity fills our deepest hungers. Jesus' abundant generosity fills our deepest hungers. It says that he said this to test Philip. You know what the, Philip's problem was? His Jesus was too small. His Jesus was too small. All he could see was the problem. How can we get enough to feed enough so that they can have a little bit? Philip's Peter, Jesus was too small. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Even Andrew, who had been with Jesus a little bit longer, says, well, we got this kid who's got five barley loaves and a couple fish. I don't know the conversation. They says, give it to me, give me the bread. I don't, but all of a sudden, here's these barley loaves. Barley loaves is a way of saying poor man food, destitute food, scrap food, barley cakes and fish. These are very destitute, poor, hungry people. And Jesus takes it. He prays. In his abundant generosity, he takes this lack and this little, and he transforms it into abundance and fills their deepest hungers. Is your Jesus too small? Is that the problem? Maybe all you see is the problem. Maybe all you see is the catastrophe, the trial, the hardship, the bills. All you see is the disease. All you see is the, uh, the disloyalty. All you see is the lies. Your Jesus isn't big enough. 
Jesus knows what he's going to do. Jesus can take the lack in the little, the smallest amount in the presence of our deepest hunger and in his power, transform that into abundant generosity, overflowing vats of provision. You just got to put it in his hands. In his hands, it's abundance. In Jesus' hands, everyone is satisfied. Do you know what it means to be hungry? Hungry of soul, hungry of body, hungry of mind. Let Jesus be your abundant generosity. Maybe your Jesus is just too small. The story continues in verse 16. Evening came, the disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. That's like a key word in the Bible, like things are going to get bad. Okay? And Jesus had not yet come to them, so it's bad and Jesus isn't there. Been there? Been there? The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about three or, four hours, three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. He said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus guides us through our storms. He guides us through our storms. So you need to know, understand a little bit of geography, okay? So imagine a teardrop, water drop, flip it upside down. Okay, that's the shape of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. The place that they're located, a town called Tiberias, is around nine o'clock. Okay, nine o'clock. So picture the upside down teardrop, nine o'clock. Capernaum's around 12 o'clock. So the guys are going to hop in a boat and they're going to cut a shortcut. Nautical, about five and a half miles this way. Instead of going around by land, they're going to go across by sea. The guys have lived on this sea their entire lives. This is where they fish. This is the sea that they know. They've got this. But there's something else about this sea. Because of the elevation, the topography of that land, it is famous for gales and storms. Which means at a moment, you can be setting off, rowing, and you are swallowed up in what is called what? Rough, strong seas. And they are rowing. And they haven't even made it halfway yet. Do you know what that's like? To be swallowed up in the storm and you don't know east from west, north from south. And it's a rocking and it's a moving and the water's coming in and you don't know. And all you can do is to row and to row and to row. And it doesn't feel like you're getting anywhere. In fact, you're not quite sure. Are we supposed to be rowing this way? Because I think the waves have us going this way now. And I think we're supposed to be heading this way. Can we get it turned around? Do you know what it's like to be in the storm? and not know which way to go. And it feels like no matter which way you go, you don't make it any farther. <laughs> Here comes Jesus walking on the water because <laughs> he's over the chaos. Did you know that? He's over the chaos in the same way that the Holy Spirit hovered over the chaotic waters of pre-creation. Jesus is over the chaos of the storm, over the chaos of the wave. It doesn't touch him. He commands it. And they look and they're scared. I'd be scared too. I mean, let's be honest. I'm sweating my butt off. I'm just trying to make it forward. Here comes some guy walking through. And then Jesus is like, hey, 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 it's me. It's me. Hey, it's me. And did you see what it says? And they were glad to get him in the boat. And then it says, immediately they were at their destination. There are multiple stories in the Gospels. Jesus sleeping in boats and calming storms or walking out there and Peter walks and there's multiple. But in this situation, you see what didn't happen? He didn't turn the storm off but he brought him through it. Because Jesus guides us through our storms. We were reading from Psalm 107 in our congregational reading. And the reason that I picked that reading was because of this, this sign, this story. I want us to read it again, just a few verses in the beginning. Maybe you can feel and sense some of these things now come to life a little bit. Uh, there we go. Read with me. 
Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. One more. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. You have places that you're trying to get to. And all you know right now is the storm. Have you brought Jesus into the boat? Have you brought Jesus into the boat? Let's look at another one. Is he going to do this all morning? I think he's going to do this all morning. I am so doing this all morning. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Mo, how's your foot? You need anything? You good? You going to let us sign your cast? What's that? Okay, I'm good. All right. This is daylight savings time. I have a whole extra hour of preaching. All right. There's some people who want you to be quiet now, Mo. <laughs> John chapter 9. I think Terry just elbowed you too. John chapter 9. Listen to this side. I th- this, mm, maybe this, this one you can connect to. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. I can't imagine. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, that's a stupid question. Don't ask that again. That's my translation. <laughs> Jesus said this. It was not that this man sinned or his parents or the work, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. This means sent. So he went, washed, and came back seeing. Jesus is the light that defeats our darkness. Jesus is the light that defeats our darkness. Here's a man who for his entire life had been blind. Now, many times in scripture, when it talks about blindness, it's also talking about spiritual blindness. That we are born spiritually blind. We are born broken, our hearts twisted. We're born that way. You guys ever hear the country song, I believe most people are good? You guys ever hear that song? I believe most people. That country singer clearly never worked in a church nursery. Because we are born depraved. We are born broken. We are born sinful. We are not good people. And then all of a sudden public school messes up. That's not how this works, folks. We are born twisted and fallen. We are born blind. And all we can do on our own is stumble and fall. And we try Oh, we try. We try hard, don't we? But it seems the harder we try, the harder we fall. As another brick wall hits us across the head. Here is a man born blind. But Jesus is the light that defeats the darkness. So he crouches down and he grabs some 
dirt and he spits in it and he creates some clay and he creates some mud. Ava's like, this is disgusting. Like, no, no, no. Ava, Ava, this, is, this is like picture of creation. This is like God bending down to form Adam. This is that kind of spirit that God's going to create something now. Where there wasn't something, now there's going to be something. Because Jesus is that kind of person. So Jesus makes this mud, wipes it over the guy's eyes and he says, go find Siloam. Wash there. He takes him in his word. He starts to stumble. He starts to walk. Can you imagine that moment when he finally finds the pool and that cool water? Do you think he kind of put his toe in or do you think he just jumped in all the way? He just jumped in, didn't he? And all of a sudden, where there was darkness, all of a sudden the shades of light. He's never seen light before. He's never seen shades of. He's never seen anything. And then all of a sudden he starts to see. He sees faces and he sees fruit and he sees birds and he sees the sky and he sees things he didn't even know existed. Because Jesus is the light that defeats the darkness. This is what happens when we give our life to Jesus for the first time. We had been stumbling in the dark and then all of a sudden the light of Jesus bursts in and we see shades like we'd never seen shades and we see triumph where we'd never seen triumph before. And we see a path where we didn't know there was a path because Jesus is the light. And maybe like this man, you're still living in your blindness. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Let me tell you another one. Is he gonna do this all morning? He's so going to do this all morning. John chapter 11, Lazarus. And maybe already you know the story. Lazarus, right? What happened to Lazarus? What? He died. Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus, right? So in John chapter 11, this is the central, this is the center of John's gospel. It's the middle narrative. It's kind of like everything. You need to get this. John's like saying, here's the, here's the big idea. Here's the center. Lazarus, John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, sister Martha. Verse 3. The sisters went and said to the Lord, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Apparently that's enough in the email. That's enough of the text. That's all Jesus needs to know. Hey, the one that you love is very sick. And Jesus will know if it comes from Mary, if it comes from Martha, this must be Lazarus. And Jesus heard about it. The illness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the son of man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what does he do? He rushes there. He stays two more days. You know the story. Lazarus died. In fact, if you do the math, Lazarus died probably about the same day that the note went out to Jesus. Because Jesus makes his way near town. He's on the hunt. He's being hunted by the Pharisees. He's being hunted by the Sadducees. And it's, it's almost a death wish for Jesus to come back into Bethany. The disciples know it. He knows it. But did you know that Jesus will face down death so he can bring you life? Did you know that? Jesus makes his way. Martha finds out where he is. Martha runs to him. If you had been here, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary makes her way. If you had been here, if you had been here, then my brother wouldn't have died. If you didn't know this, if you didn't know this, Jesus always takes longer than you think he should. But he's also closer than you're expecting. So he says, take me to where you've laid him. Take me to where you've laid him. And people are weeping. People are wailing. Community from Jerusalem has come out. Bethany's just on the other side of Mount of Olives, a couple miles away. There's families there. The mourners are there. Martha's wailing. Mary is wailing. 
They look on and they see Jesus' face. And you know what they conclude? Oh, how he loved him. And it says in, in the gospel, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. You know what that sounds like in the English? It sounds like he was sad. He was really sad. That's not what it means, though. You know what it means? It means he was angry. He was mad. It's the same word that's used to describe a war horse. The way that they'll flare their nostrils and stomp the ground. Jesus is furious. He's fuming. As he stands here and he's facing down the tomb and he's facing down the stone and he's facing down death as his loved ones are so riddled with grief and sadness that death and sin and depravity have so worked their way, their vile, monstrous tendrils in through his good creation, he's mad. And he looks at the stone and it says, he's fuming. And he says, roll it away. And Martha's like, it's gonna stink. Lazarus, get out of there. And you can imagine it got quiet. And what started to happen? Dead man walking. Because Jesus, Jesus brings dead things back to life. Jesus brings dead things back to life. He brings dead souls back to life. Dead relationships back to life. Dead dreams back to life. And if that's not enough mic drop, he goes off and he does it again. Talk about an encore. He does it with himself. He'd said earlier uh, in the Gospel of John, Gospel of John chapter 2, he's in Jerusalem and he's picking a fight because Jesus would do this. I mean, he was politically subversive. He was a thorn in everyone's flesh. He wasn't some, oh, no, 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 no. They considered him a terrorist, a political terrorist. And they're like, you need to give us a sign. Like, you're saying some pretty harsh things here. If you really want us to believe, you need to do something that we know that you're legit from God. He's like, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Tear down the temple. Three days later, I'll build it up again. And you're like, dude, it took us 46 years to build this temple. You're not doing it in three days. And he's already walked off. But John writes what he later found out, that Jesus was referring to his body that they would take his body and they were going to torture it and they were going to beat it and they were going to scourge it and they were going to mock it and they were going to parade it through the streets of Jerusalem and they were going to put on his shoulders this tremendous oaken beam and they were going to literally nail his body parts to this big log and they were going to mock him hour after hour till he comes to the place of complete depletion in the Palestinian sunshine as his life starts to flow out and he dies. And if that wasn't enough, a centurion grabs a lance, thrusts it inside of his ribcage, twists it, obliterating his internal organs, and his blood gushes out onto the ground. He's dead. Romans knew how to kill people. They toss his body into a tomb. And three days later, he walked out. And they're like, he said he was going to do that. I didn't believe him. Who's going to believe him? Who would believe him? He said he was going to do that. He said that three days later, he would come back. Did you know that Jesus takes dead things and he makes them alive? I said I left a story out. I'd like to take it back to you there as we finish up what to do here. Is he going to do this all morning? No, I think he's almost done. And John chapter five is one more of John's seven signs that he gives us. And I wanted to come back to it at the end because I think it can meet us all where we're at. 
Because some of us have come in here with emptiness, just like at that wedding. Some of us have come here desperate, desperate, like that royal father for his son. Some of us have come here hungering, impoverished and poor. Some of us have come here lost in the storm and we don't know how to move forward. The questions are so big. The implications are so great. And all we've been doing is rowing and rowing and we're exhausted. We feel completely blind. We don't know how to move forward. We stand outside of a tomb. Maybe we stand within the tomb and we don't know how to get out. Jesus says, this, Jesus is this story. In John chapter five, after this, there was a feast. Verse two, there was a Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic, Bethesda, had five uh, roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been there an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he'd already been there a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? That's the question. That's your question today. Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down in front of me. You notice how he doesn't answer Jesus's question? Did you notice he didn't answer Jesus' question? That's not the question I asked you. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? Well, there's no one here to help me. Do you want to be healed? Well, I've been here for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? Don't you understand someone always gets in my way? Do you want to be healed? Well, you don't know what dad did to me. Do you want to be healed? Well, you don't know what she said. Do you want to be healed? It's so hard. Do you want to be healed? then get up, then get up. There's a little bit of superstition that surrounded this pool, okay? Because of the nature of the aqueducts and the plumbing that fed this pool in, in Jerusalem, there was this habit as the water was constantly diverted every now and then that it would churn up some bubbles as the water would track from one part of the city to the other, which meant every now and then those air bubbles would bubble up through the draining pipe inside that pool. Well, someone had thought that, you know what? I think that's some angel or some, some thing that's happened. And maybe if we got in it, we could get healed. And that superstition had turned into legend and been handed down and handed down and handed down. So that now we have a guy who's 38 years old sitting next to a pool thinking that if he hops into a bunch of water, some angel's gonna touch him and make everything better. Great excuse for some kids to offload their invalid parents and go home and visit him on a sunny day. Don't worry, the angel will touch you and everything will be fine. We'll see you on Sunday. You want some crackers? Jesus says to you this morning, no matter your emptiness, no matter your desperation, and I know that storm is crazy. I know you guys have called me. I know the questions. And you've asked me, and I'm like, I, I, I got nothing. I don't know. Pastor, what should I do? Yeah, I don't know. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And get up. And get up. If you go back to that passage in John chapter 20, verse 31, it says this. John 20, verse 31. Yeah, he did lots of signs. They're not in this book. These are written so that you may believe. Okay. These are written that you might believe. I picked these seven, John says, and that's, that's all you need. Whatever the mental block you have, no matter the pride, no matter the sin, no matter what it is, within these seven, you can find something that will show you the Jesus in all of his glory that you need to see. Do you want to be healed? And the, the challenge is academics like to argue because that's what we do. 
about how to translate that word believe. Because you can go one or two ways. One of two ways. You can translate it, believe, like an evangelical belief. Like I didn't know Jesus, and now I'm going to believe Jesus, which means I believe Jesus. I take him at his word. He is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. I'm blind. Only he can heal me. Okay? Legit. And some of you are here today. Some of you here today, you are in your blindness. You have never seen the light of Jesus. And you need to proclaim, Jesus, I believe. I believe. I believe. I saw what you did with the blind man. I've seen what you did with Lazarus. I know what you did with yourself. I believe you can take my hot mess. But there's another way that you can translate it because John's gospel really wasn't written for people who don't know Jesus. It was really written for people who do know Jesus. To translate believe as be believing. I mean, continue in your belief. That yes, storms come. And yes, things get dark. And yes, there is emptiness and there is heartbreak and there is frustration. But Jesus. So let's keep believing. Let's hold on to the one who restores the blind man. Let's hold on to the one who raises the dead man. Let's hold on to the one who fills the emptiness out of his tremendous generosity, who loves us and brings life where we thought there was death. There's Jesus. So much of these stories, as different as they are, have these things in common. It's Jesus doing abundantly above and beyond to create life where there was insurmountable death. So it's not just a little wine. It's hundreds of gallons of wine. It's just not sick for a little bit. It's sick for 38 years sick. His word's not just a little powerful. It's so powerful, he doesn't even have to be in the room. He can be 16 miles away. Your son will get better. Thank you for sharing your time with us. And we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today you want to send us a short note, a member of our HOPE team would reach out quickly, promptly to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman builds their life on Jesus's instructions. God bless.